Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. Before we get into this excellent episode with Dave Dash, uh, Dave and I talked about a lot of things, but this kind of turned into a bit of a practicing deep dive. So it was especially exciting for me because I love to talk about these things and I hope it's interesting for you. But before we get into that, I just want to say, make sure you stick around past the outro so you can hear our secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. And also, I do want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of product, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Finding the right equipment for you is essential for ease of production and enjoyment of playing in your music making. But needing to rent or buy to try things out can be time-consuming and expensive. If you're looking for a way to learn about new horns or other equipment, check out Houghton Horns. They offer free in-person virtual equipment consultations with their team of professional musicians, which means whether you live in Keller, Texas, or you live outside the United States, Houghton Horns is able to serve you. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. I also want to mention real quick, I know we normally drop the uh, intro music right there, but they've started releasing the recordings that they do uh, each year of TMEA's uh, audition material. And so they put together these high-quality recordings and tutorials from top-level players like John Romero, Kyle Sherman, uh, Mark Houghton does it, and... I just think it's such a great resource and they've started releasing it. So I wanted to make sure all of you knew about that, especially those of you that are in Texas, make sure to check out their YouTube channel, which I will link in the bio. And if you're not someone who's auditioning for TMEA, you should check it out anyway, because they're giving quality uh, advice, quality education, also just great playing in these videos and something that we can all learn from as well. So make sure you check that out. I'll put that link in the description and uh, let's roll the intro. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and I'm here today with Dave Dash. Uh, this has been a long time coming. Uh, I've known Dave. Uh, I've known of Dave for a very long time. I follow a lot of his Instagram stuff and the Apex Symposium posts and things like this. So I know he's been doing a lot of great work, uh, sharing ideas and trying to uh, connect with you know musicians and trumpet players in our community. But I have not had minus one conversation a few years ago now, which is crazy to think it's been that long. But Minus one conversation. I haven't really had a chance to get to know Dave, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, Dave is the trumpet professor at the North Carolina School of the Arts. He's currently doing a one-year um, position with the North Carolina Symphony. He also plays with the Santa Fe Opera. He is also co-founder of the Apex Trumpet Symposium. He plays with the Dash Duo with his wife, Mary Elizabeth Bowden. He's the principal cornet of the North Carolina Brass Band and principal trumpet with the Chamber, or with chamber Orchestra Triangle. 
Is that right? Yeah, chamber Did orchestra that right? of the triangle. Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> of yeah. the triangle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, just by that sort of introduction, I'm very much looking forward to kind of picking your brain about how you, I mean, life balance is going to be a part of this. <laughs> being able to know, like, you know, being able to be prepared for all these things is going to be a part of it. And then just as as we were talking just before we started here, just how you you know, how you rationalize with yourself that these are all things that you can do. Like, how do you see yourself in all these different roles? Because sometimes we can pigeonhole ourselves as I am just this or only this. And so you obviously have um, a, a vision or a, a way you see yourself where you can do lots of different things. And I'll be, I'm so I'm curious to dig into all of this. Before we do it, thank you for joining me on my podcast. It's great to finally get to talk to you on here. Yeah, thank you so much, Ryan. I, I really appreciate it. I follow your podcast and uh, and your own personal stuff, and uh, I think I think you just put out such a an amazing product for the trumpet community, and uh, it's really valuable. And I enjoy listening to it. I learn a lot. So thank you for having me here. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that support, man. It it really does mean a lot. And. Um, so I appreciate that. Let's uh, dive into your backstory a little bit. Tell us about you. Tell us about how you got started, and we'll kind of walk through your career just so we can kind of get a sense of where you've been. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll try to make it really brief. Uh, so I, I started when I was a little kid. I was five years old, and I did uh, kind of an ear training class through the Yamaha Corporation. Uh, I did that for a few years and started playing piano at the same time. Uh, and I, I still play piano a little bit now, but I, um, I studied it pretty intensely, you know, when I was a kid. Uh, and then I started playing trumpet in the... Um, you know, in the public school band program in fifth grade. And uh, let's see, in high school, I kept playing in public school. And on the weekends, I would go up to Juilliard pre-college and do their, uh, their whole system that was on Saturdays. Uh, then I went to Rice, studied with Armando Guitala, and uh, went to uh, Manhattan School of Music for grad school. I studied with Bob Sullivan there. Uh, and then I won a job with the President's Own Marine Band. And uh, uh, when I went there, I, I walked in and I was like, okay, I got four years this gig. I, I want to treat it like another undergraduate degree. I want to get like I want to make that much improvement, so I started studying with a, with a number of people, including Tim White at the Kennedy Center Opera and uh, uh, Renee Shapiro with the Baltimore Symphony. And after that, I won Naples and Santa Fe roughly at the same time. From there, it was uh, was on to the stuff that I'm in, into now. So that's my <laughs> career in a nutshell. <laughs> ah, wow, that was. That was quite packaged. That's damn, good. Damn. So, I mean, I, I'm I'm fine if you would have expanded upon it, but um, yeah. And then Naples, I think I was uh, I dated Jacqueline for a little while, and so she was in Naples, and that's I think right. the first time I had really become aware of who you are. And I heard a, a brass quintet concert. I remember oh, okay uh, a long time ago, and um, just thought you sounded just really really beautiful, really polished, really consistent approach, and Thanks. that's just maintained to be true. So. Um, it's been cool to sort of hear you do your thing, and it's no surprise that you've experienced that kind of success. I, I kind of want to dive into just what you said, just for a second, about the sort of treating it like another undergraduate degree, mm. because that's an interesting way to phrase it to me. Mm. Because, like, I don't know if I would have like treated my undergraduate degree like an undergraduate degree <laughs> when I was an undergraduate. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I wonder if you had a different perspective just being that much later in your career and also having a job. So when you say you wanted to treat it like an undergraduate degree and make that kind of progress, like how are you able to um, see progress? How are you able to, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like when you're that young, you're sort of just doing what people tell you to do and then you get better. But at this stage, you're much more in control of your own progress. So I'm just kind of curious what kinds of things you worked on, how you worked on them, what kind of progress you did see, and what does that look like when you have a job, when we think we're supposed to be put together? What does that look like to continue to grow from there? 
Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think the first thing is like there's uh, there's no such thing as an arrival point. I think for any of us, but um, you know, just because you are getting a paycheck doesn't mean that you are done learning. And uh, and I knew that in my own trajectory, I had a lot of growth left to do. And there was actually a very specific moment. I, I went to the uh, New York Philharmonic was having an audition uh, early in my time, and I knew I couldn't, even if I was <laughs> by some miracle had won the job, I wouldn't be able to leave the Marine Band. I, you know, that's not not uh, possible. But I but I went anyway just to kind of go and. I had this experience where I played and I played like, I played okay, you know, but I knew, I knew for a fact that even if I played my very best at that point, I had no chance of winning the job. I was just so far from anything like that. And, uh, and it was just kind of a wake up call. And, and so, um, I just realized that like, I, I really had this kind of fire to, uh, to keep learning and keep improving. So I, I wound up, oh man, like um, I was just looking for people to to uh, to interact with, and so somebody recommended Tim White, and so I wound up playing for him every two weeks or three weeks uh, for a few years, three or four years. And Tim Tim's emphasis was all about music. I, mean, I don't think we talked about technique like ever. Uh, and if I brought up some kind of technical concern, which is always like where my mind tends to go, he would just mm-hmm. redirect me. You know, it would be back to singing <laughs> and phrasing and expression and and. Uh, and vibrato and, you know, so the, all, all this kind of stuff. And so he helped me a lot there. And then uh, uh, I, I did well in a, in a, in a sublist audition for the Baltimore Symphony. So I was playing up there a fair amount and I met Rene Shapiro and he just, you know, he sounded fantastic. And so, uh, you know, he was willing to give me a, a lot of advice. And it was, a lot of that was coaching on excerpts, you know, because I was, I was really into taking orchestra auditions. I wanted to play in an orchestra. Um, and, I, and I studied with Andy Ballio also, and Andy uh, helped me quite a bit too, also with just musical stuff. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but. <laughs> no, yeah, it does. You, you brought up another point that I feel like I believe some things that like maybe aren't, I don't know how to say it in a good way, so I just won't. But I think there's a balance between musical considerations and technical considerations. And I think some some people, maybe because you tend towards the technical considerations more, they need more of like a musical, not musical fix, but trying to keep their mind there more often because their mind, like you said, might normally go to the technical side. But I think the opposite can exist too, where someone's very into the musical thing, but doesn't have a way to sort of break things down and understand like, if it's not going well, why? And how do I sort of work towards that? So I'm kind of curious with sort of a technical leaning, but having so much musical uh, input, how do you, what's your balance now as a player? What's your balance as a teacher? How do we know when it's time to focus on one than the other? Because I think some people thinking of the music in your head will not always be the fix. And I think that's the first and sometimes optimal fix, but it's not always a fix. I'm just curious kind of where you land on that now after the background that you have. Yeah, for sure. Um, Where I am at the moment is that uh, I have a kind of part of my day where I think a lot about, about the technique stuff. And then I, and then I really try to get away from it uh, as much as possible when I'm, when I'm just playing music. Um, but in terms of like a slightly longer time scale, I think that when you're preparing for, um, you know, recital or audition or preparing music for performance in an ensemble, usually there's like a kind of trajectory. You know, at the beginning, it's like just learning notes, you know, like how does this thing go? Uh, and then like maybe you you start to learn notes and then you hit a point where you're like, okay, that's some, this is not 
like professional standard. Like I need to figure out why this is not working. And then you can start to delve into the, to the technique kind of stuff. And I think on the other side of that is getting back into the intuitive, creative, just like singing through the music. I think throughout, like especially for younger students, it's all about listening to recordings of people that you really, really love the way that they sound on the music that you're playing. Um, I kind of remember being, uh, you know, guitarologist loaded me up with technique. I mean, I would walk in with like like ten inches of books, you know, and and uh, and we wouldn't even get through it in an hour. He'd he'd give me two lessons in a week, and and we just like hammer on the on the Schlossberg and Arben and Vizzuti and Colin and everything. Um, and so, you know, I came from that, and like that's that's I had this thought that like if my technique is optimal, if if I'm doing everything great on the trumpet, then I can just play anything. I don't need to really practice music. And I couldn't have been more wrong, you know? Like, you got, <laughs> like I was just, <laughs> I was so off base. I mean, you just got to learn the music. You got to know how it goes. You got to know the nuances of the, uh, of the expression and the phrasing and the emotion. And I think a lot of young students um, don't, not, I, I shouldn't say young students, I think even sometimes undergrads, like don't, don't really get that. And I think also about the technique, like, you know, I kind of have a, um, an obsessive personality. And so like, nothing's ever good enough, you know? So in terms of like the clarity of pitch and time and uh, like how smooth is a slur or whatever, it's like, I have a, like a very, very high standard. And, and I think that sometimes if people are just into the expression, they think the clarity is good enough and it's really not. I think that's true for most uh, people who are not professional trumpet players. Yeah. One of the things I'm, as a teacher, as a coach, that I'm really trying to think of often is, like, I hear somebody play, and I I maybe used to think, well, this is what I would do. This is what I would do to fix that. But now I'm really trying to think, well, what does this person need? Yeah. Because I think sometimes we, I have in the past, and I would imagine it's the same, we sort of view things through our lens mm -hmm. and we have our biases of what we think people need to be thinking about at mm -hmm. all times. And I'm trying to become more aware of like, where is this person in their development? Mm -hmm. And just because I think that, you know, they need to, they need to be more in the style of this excerpt. Mm -hmm doesn't mean that they are physically capable of producing. If they can't make the same sound two times in a row, like we should not be talking about style, in my opinion. Right. We should be talking about how to make a consistent sound on the trumpet because then their, their attempts will be more successful when going to figure out how to do style. And I'm just curious because this is like then not only a balance, but it's like trying to even ascertain as a teacher, as a coach, this is more that, but it could certainly apply to our own playing how we figure out where we are in that developmental process. Yeah. Like, where are we? Have we established this enough that we can think of more musical things? How do we know when we're sort of not out of that phase, so to speak, but I think you know what I'm saying. Do you have any thoughts on how you analyze that for your own playing when you're like, all right, like, I, I understand this enough that I need to get back into the music or with your, in your own teaching when you what you kind of look for? I'm just curious for your thoughts because these are things I'm thinking about a lot right now in my own playing and my own coaching. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I, I think you're 100% right. I think teaching really has to be to the individual and everybody, especially if you teach beginners, you know, if, which I did for a long time. So if you teach beginners, you see kids walking in the door and like, you know, kid A has like a, a good sound, but like pitch is terrible. <laughs> you know, time is so-so. And then like kid B will like, it, so you have all these, all these different sort of facets of, of things that people naturally sort of do well and they, they naturally don't do something so well. And, and so that, 
trend kind of, you know, a lot of people make developments, but like you can, when you first start working with somebody, you need time to like figure out like, okay, this is something that they naturally do well. And this is something they really need to work on. And it's totally different for every person. Um, and, uh, so I, I think the other challenge is that, you know, when you're figuring out where to go as a, a player in your say late teens and early twenties, um, you, you have so much information coming in that you're maybe not sure like what's the best approach. And so mm -hmm. you, you kind of have to trust your teacher and just roll with that and, and believe and trust and do what that person says and then ascertain if it's like later, <laughs> ascertain if it's really the direction you want to go in. And it's, there's a lot of trial and error there. Um, so at this point in my, in my development, I've kind of figured out like, um, you know, when I first start my days, I need to meditate for a few minutes to get my mind clear. I need to do some relaxing of my body. Otherwise, I get really tense and anxious. I need to work on my breathing. Otherwise, the breathing will be kind of, you know, unenergetic. Uh, and so if I do those things before I even start, then that helps me play better. Like, for, this is one example of something that, like, I do that every day to, uh, to, to, you know, make sure that when I first, when I play my first notes, they're, like, my best effort. Absolutely. You touched on two things. One of the things you said was sort of trusting your teacher and then ascertaining later whether or not that's the direction you want to go. And then, gosh, I can't even remember the other thing you said because <laughs> I was, it's this hard thing about podcasting where it's like, I really want to know about that, but you like continue listening to the yeah, person. Yeah. <laughs> I used to be, actually, you used to be really bad about like, I heard something. I was like, I'll ask a question about that. And then I stopped listening because I was like, I just need to have another question ready to go, you right, know, right, rather right. than like, I'm going to listen to the person. So we'll just start here with this ascertaining. Okay. This has been really hard for me because I grew up with such amazing education. But as I've grown, like the issues that I have grown to solve in my playing being on my own, some of the solves seem to stand a little bit at odds with what I was taught, right? And so that's kind of this interesting, um, like, I don't think it's saying one is wrong. It's just saying, like, there is some tension now in, like, what I've learned to uh, hold near me as I play and sort of what I was taught. And so then the question becomes, and I think this is a very open-ended question. I'll be curious to see where you go. How do we develop that authority in ourselves, right? Mm. How do we move from the authority of our teacher to mm. I trust my way of doing that? Because I don't even know if I'm fully there. I, I'm there most of the way, but you know, to fully trust. You hear Chris Smith talk about this a lot. Like, I stay in my lane and I find success there. He says this anytime anyone asks the question, how are you successful? But like, how do you know you're in your lane and that's the right lane and that he clearly trusts his own authority and his approach and his playing? What are your thoughts on how you kind of make that shift from like a younger player into developing like this is my way of doing it? And if there is some tension with my teaching or previous education, that's okay. God, this is such a great question. I mean, I don't, I don't really have an answer that's that would be universal. That's that's a really tough one. I mean, I think that it's taken me a long time, long, many years, and and it's difficult, to, you know, when you're teaching somebody and they want the answer right now, like like this week, you know, and you're like, you're the answer for you might be in like five years, you know, but you can't tell somebody that, you know, it's like one of the most frustrating things to hear as a young player is like, oh, you're just not old enough, you need more time. I try to stay away from this. Sometimes I find myself saying it and I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> because it's like, it doesn't help them right now, you know? But, right, but right. It, I, I think it does help 
to tell them like to be you know be patient you maybe you don't hear what i'm hearing right now but like keep keep trying keep trying your best like you're on the right path you know and encouraging them um but i i, I think that generally the answer to that question is probably sometime after you're in school and you know it's like kind of that early 20s to mid 20s kind of time period like a lot of the time that's when all the information that you've been gathering you know from your late teens into your early 20s like kind of coalesces and you start to figure out like okay i have like uh, like three different kind of ways of <laughs> thinking about something and like okay b like worked best you know i i think that's generally what happens with a lot of people no i i'd agree with that i i started thinking i mean it was early 20s it didn't fully set it i don't feel like i really fell into like this is the way I do things until like a year and a half ago or so, you know. But when I was in grad school, I kind of could realize at that time when I would play for Barbara and I'd play for Charlie and I would play for Gail Williams and Michael Mulcahy and then Dr. Thompson and then like, you know, uh the clarinet professor and, and I'll get all of these in all this input. I play for the bassoon professor for auditions. I get all this input. And everybody cares about something else then, you know, like everybody cares about something different. Mm -hmm. And then I'd be like, I, I remember like preparing and I would get ready for the audition. And then I would be like, okay, like which thing am I going to focus on, you yeah. know? And like which version of this, even if there were different musical, like I like it this way and I like it this way, which musical version am I supposed to pick that's going to win me the audition, right? Because that's the ultimate goal. And that kind of pressure is very difficult to deal with for me of like, you want it you it's like you have to pick the right version when you view winning the audition is the is the end game right mm. if we view it as like it's a step towards developing a process that will like result in winning an audition mm. a little bit of the pressure of picking the right version is released because then you're like oh i'll just try the other one next time mm -hmm. but when you're like a sort of end game person like i was at that time and i remember just thinking oh i i think it's got to be my version like I gotta, I should play my version of which whatever I think the the interpretation should be. But then you're like, well, what is that? You know, mm. and you're getting into those kinds of things. So to me, this kind of con this whole sort of, and I like the way you said it. I really like the way you said it. That like sometimes the answer is like you'll figure it out in five years. <laughs> right. But nobody want. I don't want to hear that. No. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's so hard to hear. So, um, but I I think that like we're hitting on something really interesting here, and I can't help but think of my. Uh, friend Tom Hooten, who seems to have like the best of both worlds. He's like so willing to experiment and try crazy things, like just to like, let's see what happens, you know, and he'll run with something that, you know, uh, uh, most people would give up on pretty quickly, you know, but he'll like keep, keep turning with it. And then when it's time to perform, he just, he just performs and it's like all expression. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that there's a, there, there is a middle ground there. Most people, including myself, have so much ego tied in to um, the result that we're not willing to objectively figure out whether the process is working. And I, and I actually just listened to your um, PDSA uh, podcast, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's like being a scientist. It's like trying, being able to totally. take a step back and say, like, did it work or not? You know, and like actually making a plan and writing it down, literally writing it down somewhere or typing it, whatever, and then like figuring it out is is an essential part of the process. If you're trying to hold it all between your ears, like you're you're gonna fail. Like write it down, please. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad that you are the one that that put it that bluntly because I'm sometimes afraid to just say it's not going to work. Like right. <laughs> I'll say, you can try it. Like. I don't think it's going to work, but <laughs> it's nice. It's nice to hear somebody else just say it's not going to work. 
And I, I totally agree. And and I mean, this is an interesting. I'd love your your thoughts on this. And this might go to some of what we what I was talking to you about on Instagram, kind of wanting some of your feedback on the process. But in the gold method thing that I that I developed, the D, the defined time frame is this. It's this thing where you're like, I'm just gonna. I'm, that's like what you're talking about, Tom. Like I'm willing to go, f- like I'm gonna willing to pursue it further than other people. For me, I just like try to des- decide a frame of or a frame of time that I'm willing to um, dis- dispend towards seeing what will happen with it, right? Yeah. And I've even gotten to the point where for things like auditions, I think it's instead of like I'm gonna prepare for an audition for six or eight weeks or whatever, I think it's so much more valuable to pra- to prepare for two weeks three or four times. Mm. Like, I know that sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but it's like you get all this information every two weeks about yeah. how the process is working, and then you get to go back to the beginning of the process cool. and then just start fixing those things that you wish would have been different. Love that. You can actually fix them, you know? It requires it to be incredibly efficient in mm-hmm. those two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. To go from beginning of the process to the end of the process. Mm-hmm. But... This is so important because exactly the reason you said our egos are tied to it. So mm. I'm kind of curious for you, how do you structure things? Like, what does that look like for you? If, even if you want to sort of share a little bit about how you, what you said, like you've been incorporating some of the tempo variations and stuff uh, for that particular, that Mahler 5 video I listened to, which I thought sounded amazing. Oh, thanks, man. Just curious, like, what does that look like for you? How do you, what when you're writing plans, what does that look like for you? And, and how do you assess data, basically? Yeah. Well, uh, I want to take it to one, one step back because there, uh, there's just some, another thought I had about about this thing about like learning and having different different inputs and trying to figure out which one is best. I, um, and then I just didn't want to forget about that. So I think that even when you're young and you're getting different inputs, you're like, I don't know which one is right. Like the the biggest problem is not making a decision. So just decide and be authoritative in your own mind and in your approach about something, and then fig and then and then ascertain later, you know, then you can try that other method. I mean, when we're, when we're like 18, 19, 20 years old, we're like, we feel like we need to get it right now. But the truth is you got a long time to figure it out, you know? So you got to like, um, be patient in a way, but, but, um, but still like speak with authority, like no matter what it is that you're, that you're trying. Um, as far as the tempo, yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, so, so I think then that the goal has to be that you, the goal of that, that I'm going to pick one needs to be, and we'll see what happens, right. not, and it will be the right one. Right, right, of course, of course. Uh, because then you'll never make a choice because you're like, well, maybe it's not the right one. Yeah. But yeah. if you're like, well, we'll see what happens. And so then you need to assess like, well, we'll see what happens. Was it successful? Well, then you need to know like what would make something successful. Like yeah. how would I define something being successful so I know if I've moved in that direction or not? Like I think it opens up better conversations with yourself mm. when you stop thinking it's got to be right and you start thinking more, I just want to see what happens. That's yeah. another thing to add, I guess. I love that. And I, I love the frameworks that you are creating for people because it uh, allows for different approaches. You're not insisting like it has to be this way, but it's just like a, an opportunity for people to ascertain if, the, if what they're trying is working or not. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, going back to the tempo growth thing, um, I can't remember if it, if I first encountered this with with you or with Chris Smith, um, or uh, I've been doing some work with Matt Ernst also, and Matt does the same stuff. Um, but yeah, I've started incorporating that uh, into my practicing. So now, when I start learning almost anything, I start at half tempo, and this is new. This is like pandemic, post pandemic. You know, before that, I would just like be like. Uh, my my defined time frame was like right now, 
you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had zero patience. Or never. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was like, yeah, exactly. It's either now or never. And I, and I felt like, okay, well, I can't, why can't I play this B shade to like, I, you know, so I would just like try my hardest and have no tempo, <laughs> you know, this is just nothing. <laughs> so, so it's very different now. Um, my, my defined time frame is usually a week, uh, depending on what it is. But, um, uh, like for example, I, I was working on Petrushka for this North Carolina symphony audition. Um, and I, I started half tempo and I went up one click per day and I think I got to like the mid nineties and then I like had to start recording. So I, I just jumped to like performance tempo, but it was the best I've ever done it. You know, it, it was like mm-hmm. those, those issues that I used to have with the arpeggio and stuff like that. It just like went away. I mean, it was really, really mm-hmm. cool for me, for me to experience that. Um, so generally uh, I, I do exactly what you prescribe in your, in your method. I, I like pick a defined time frame, usually a week, pick my goal tempo, start at half tempo, then I go up the appropriate, you know, interval to get to get to my um, uh, to my thing. The 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 other thing that I think is important for people to realize is that like you have to play at performance level. You know, just because you're playing slower doesn't give you leeway to like miss notes or have a bad sound or like intonation is weird. You know, you just have to like play. It's like that Bud Herseth quote, always perform, never practice, always perform. It's so apt. It's just like play at your highest musical standards 100% of the time. And if you do that along with like what you're talking about with tempo growth, like that's, that's a pretty good recipe for success on just about anything. Uh, yeah, I love this. Is, it's so cool to me to hear like, you just put some stuff out into the ether and like intelligent, you know, like you're incredibly intelligent and you're motivated and you're like, let's just like incorporate some of this. And of course you're talking about it comes from other people. So that hopefully helps like solidify the validity of what it is too. that multiple people that I respect feel this way. But it's so cool that you, yeah, to me, the gold method is so much more important than my way of applying it. Like I have, you know, I work on etudes for two weeks in the way that I've got it all worked out and stuff like that. So it's almost like this casual thing. Like it's just, it's like 15 minutes of my practice session is dedicated towards this. And then I move on. You know what I mean? Like, so the, the, the few things that are always sticking points and I'm gonna, I want, I want to see what your thoughts are. The first one is, is I, I find you have to learn how to play practice slow. Like, learning how to play slow in a way that will benefit you playing fast because it's easy to play slow and then just like not have a a relationship with like how is this helping me do the thing that's fast Mm. because you basically have to do it the same Mm -hmm. just slower right Right. so you're ingraining all the right habits so how like do you feel like that was something you just kind of always knew or do you feel like through playing slow you got better at practicing slow like what's your how did that work for you to be able to get the most out of your slow practice. Yeah, I think I was bad at it at first. I, I think that my, like, something in the airstream was, like, too vertical. And by playing slowly, I, like, had to start, like, sustaining more. It, it was very helpful for me. But it, it was it was challenging at first. And I think it helps endurance, too. I mean, like, if you think about it, you're playing everything twice as long. Like, every phrase is, you know. So, um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I just wanted. I think the same thing that like, it's the same thing with anything. Like we just learn, it's a skill we need to learn how to practice slow. Mm. It's not like this optional thing that you could do if you wanted to mm-hmm. <laughs> play slow. Like it's a thing that we all should be doing because I'll try to explain this as fast as possible because I'm talking a lot in this interview, but 
I basically view it as a way to make it so that the playing quality is consistent and that we are willing to make the way we play the exercise variable mm -hmm. instead of the other way around where it's like the quality is variable when we just approach it at tempo the same. And we're hoping that just the quality will magically get higher right? by just playing it over and over and over again. But right. it seems way smarter to me to just get the quality you want in some format, right? usually slower, and then just work your way holding that quality as you continue to bump up the tempo. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I think I was kind of an idiot when I was younger, and a lot of people are not. I mean, I would, I would never call somebody else an idiot, but <laughs> isn't that interesting? The whole, <laughs> like, anyway. So, like, yeah. uh, you know, I just, like, try as hard as I could <laughs> and just kind of hope for the best, you know, but I didn't really have a plan. I would just, like, listen to the Phil Smith excerpt CD, like, a billion times and, like, try to sound like that. And uh, so I had, like, no, no structure for my practicing. I had... Um, no, like my only goal was like, I wanted to practice three hours a day, but when that happened in the day was not planned at all. So sometimes I would just like pound myself, actually frequently, I would just pound myself into the ground and put myself into a place where I just couldn't play the trumpet anymore, you know? And, and that's something that's changed a lot too. And, and that's, uh, that was a, a big influence of you and Smith and, and Matt Ernst. And, you know, it's just like scheduling breaks in between your practice sessions, scheduling breaks within your practice sessions is so essential. And like, like Chris says, you know, rest before you get tired. But in order to figure out where that point is, you have to have a kind of a schedule so that you know what mm -hmm. to expect. If, it's, if it changes every day, it's going to be really hard to figure out where your, where your limit is, current limit is. It's going to grow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much in here, so much in here that I could just ramble on about, but I will do my best not to. Um, how does this work its way into your teaching or with the things that you share with the symposiums that you do? Like, how does this, how do you, how is it, has it changed anything about the way you share information? Is it what changed the way you talk about structuring work with your students? Like, what does that look like for you now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think everything that we work on as players winds up uh, uh, becoming something that we share with with our students, you know, if, if it's the right thing for them. You know, as you said, we we tend to see things through our own lens. And so I think there are good things about that. You know, it's like if you're if you're if you've developed a certain uh, facility and you're playing in a particular area, like you should share how you got there. You know, uh, and maybe it'll work for the for the student. Maybe it won't. But I think as long as you're flexible about like not insisting that my way is the only way and, uh, and being open to hearing, um, you know, reservations and complaints and not seeing it as like a referendum on, on if your teaching is good enough or something like that. Like I, I want to hear complaints, you know, if, if, uh, somebody or, or reservations, like if they, if somebody thinks like, I don't, I don't know if that's going to work for me. I want to know why they think that, you know, and sometimes I'll, I'll have an answer for them. And sometimes I just say like, I don't know, you know? And so like, um, I think that it's something that's that's uh, you know important is like if you're if you're going to say something to a student, to, you know, don't don't ever say something just to say something. Like say something, you know, and just be a hundred percent honest. And if you don't have anything to say, like don't say anything. Just say like that sounds really good to me. I don't have anything to add. Yeah, sometimes when I'm coaching, I don't know exactly like what the problem is, and I'll just say that. I'll say, yeah. I'm not 100 percent sure what's going going on, but we're gonna we're gonna apply these general fixes I normally do, and we're gonna see what that does, and then like we will get to the bottom of it. We will figure it out eventually. But I think being willing to say like I don't know right now, yeah, and like I think that's to me that's pretty huge because it's like we're not 
we don't know the solutions to everything, I yeah, suppose. For yeah. sure. I think one of the biggest challenges of, of teaching is helping younger, generally younger players figure out uh like hear hear what you hear, you know. So mm-hmm. one of the hardest things, I mean, I remember being in this position too, is like you're you're young and your teacher says something and you're like, I don't hear, like, I don't know what they're talking about. I have no idea. Like, I'm just in the fog, you know? And and now we have, like, so many tools to help people hear what you hear. Uh, recording yourself is the easiest one. Recording yourself and sure. listening back at half speed is invaluable. Recording yourself and listening back at half speed with a metronome is better, <laughs> uh, depending, you know, on what you're doing. <laughs> with, with, a, with a drone or a tuner listening back, you know, I mean, we have so many ways to, to refine what we're doing using external sources, almost always some kind of recording, but it can be video recording too. I discovered something, this was probably like three or four years ago, but I, I was videoing myself playing something and I realized that when I was breathing when I was breathing in I was like shifting the mouthpiece a little bit like to the I can't remember left or right or something like that it wasn't like straight on and uh, and I only was able to discover that like I, I was looking at the video and I like I like dragged it slowly and I was like what is what is that <laughs> you know and I, and I you know but if I hadn't had that moment uh, I, I never would have and and then once I saw it, I could feel it. And I was like, oh, that's why mm. the entrance is a little weird or scoopy or whatever, you know. But it took that like that moment of analyzation that actually helped help the music. Um, so I, I think the the important part is recording. At, at some point you asked about like how you, how you make the progress. And one of the things I love about posting on so social media is uh is my own progress. Like I <laughs> look. <laughs> for for those of you who are who are, who are thinking about po- posting on social media or little, little have some reservations or whatever, like nothing that I post up there is the first try. I mean, occasionally it's the first try, but like almost nothing is the first try. This is like the fifth or the tenth or the twentieth iteration. You know, I've like made significant gains all along the way. And I've heard problems and fixed them. Like that's that's the process, and uh, and that's and part of that is like. You know, I just want to put my best foot forward always, and whether it's a video or 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 I'm playing an orchestra or whatever, like that's that's just part of the process. Yeah, one of the things you said that I think I'd love for you to expand upon is you said uh, when we like if we figured something out, we should ideally share that. Well, one of the things I love about this kind of structure is you know exactly how you did it, right? Mm. Like you, to, to the way that I think about doing things, I know down to like how many repetitions and what tempos I played them at, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know such a specific degree of, of like this is exactly what I did versus I think I did this or I think I played that. For example, at Tanglewood, we were talking to Tom Rolfs. Tom's got this really incredibly, um, I guess, um, his articulation is insane. That's the easiest way I can describe it. And I was talking to him about it and he was like, yeah, I just always like sort of always had great articulation. And then like X amount of time later, like maybe like, I don't know, a few weeks later, I forget exactly what it was. He was like, well, I was actually thinking about it. And I remembered this period of time in my life where I didn't have great articulation Mm -hmm. and I put a ridiculous, and it was when he was in school. And so it's like to him, like he had this disconnect where he basically couldn't explain like how he got this, even though he did a whole bunch of work to get it. Mm. And so I'm I'm curious then, do you feel like through this kind of structure that you've implemented, even being able to say, I worked on it for a week, I tried to do this going back, do you feel like it makes it easier for you to communicate like the things you're doing that you feel are driving the improvement you're seeing? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think I, I've taken a lot of wrong turns and dead ends. And so I, I can kind of recognize like what 
some approaches work better than others. They, they really do. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, like we, we were talking about technique and um, as much as I just talked about the thing with the video and the embouchure, like uh, generally thinking about physical things while you're playing, like doesn't seem to work that great. You know, if you're talking about aperture to somebody, like they're probably going to wind up playing tighter and not using their air and mm -hmm. probably not making any music at all. You know, so uh, I think there's a place for that, maybe, you know, very, very rarely. But like, that's a path that I went, I went deep down that rabbit hole for a long time. I did an embouchure change with Gitala, uh, you know, and uh, so that, that was like a whole part of my life. And I still go there like a fair amount, but I don't, I don't know if it, I think it depends on the person, of course. But like, you know, the more you're singing music in your head and just taking a deep breath and blowing air and making great music, the better most of the time. Sure, yeah. Well, this talk about sharing ideas and and trying to communicate them in, in what ways is a pretty good segue. I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about Apex a little bit yeah. and where it came from, how the idea sure. happened, how in the world do you guys get the guests that you do? Because <laughs> right. it's I know. just an amazing lineup every single every time. time you guys time. you do it. And yeah. I think that's such a cool, you know, I think about it, and I, it's just such a cool offering that you have that you know you can bring these people together, and it's just like a what a, what a cool sharing of ideas. Like like you're building this community where you're and like you you know you'll make these posts and you'll share these ideas, and you know in like sometimes I read them and I'm like, how does that make any sense? You know, but like to somebody else, it like might make perfect sense. You know, yeah. so I think it's so cool that there's just this wide array, and I'm curious how a lot of this came about because it. I remember it feels like it's been the last like two years that it's just like exploded. Yeah. So, yeah, that's just... it was started during the pandemic. You know, basically what happened is uh, Mary, my, my wife Mary, and our good friend Nathan Warner were having a conversation. I think maybe Nathan brought up this idea of like, oh, we should do some, something online, some kind of online teaching. And Mary was like, yes. Mary is like a do kind of like she just does, you know? <laughs> She's like, plan, let's plan. And plan like effectively, of course, and let's 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 do it. And she is amazing at that. Um, so we so we launched this thing, and and it's wound up being like an amazing an amazing thing for all of us. You know, I think that we we've we've done this like I think four iterations now, four different uh, symposiums, and um, there's like community. There's like a real sense of community, even though we're online and looking at each other through Zoom, Zoom screens, but you're seeing each other once or twice a week, you know, depend, depending. Right now we're doing twice a week on the weekends. And um, you see these people, you spend time together, you hear from them, you ask for interactions, you support each other. So like, there's this like community, there's this feeling of support. There's the amazing guest artists, as you said, you know, Wynton Marsalis and John Faddis and Nikaryakov and anything else. You know, we've had like, like just the, the Pacho Flores, I mean, Maria Ferris Bosch, like just an unbelievable number of, of incredible, incredible artists, and uh, and it's just been so fun for us to 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 learn from them and from each other. And I think another part of this that's been really great is like you know I have I have my we all have overlap of course, but like my thing is mostly orchestra. Mary thing Mary's thing is like orchestra and solo and chamber music, piccolo, and then uh, Nathan does all of that fantastic, but he also plays lead trumpet. So like we we can all lead classes you know, in the various areas that we are most comfortable with. Uh, and then we, we can, can share with, uh, 
with the participants. So there's been a lot of enthusiasm about it. Um, we're planning on doing an in-person version this summer, uh, which we're super excited to be able to, to, to offer that. And we're hoping that some of our um, people who have come back to, to many of these sessions will actually be there in person. Uh, I got to say, like, I've met a number of, uh, of participants in person after working with them online for a long time, and it's so fun. And it's not nearly as different as you might think. Like, you see them in person, and you're like, oh, I... I know you. Like we spent a lot of time together, yeah. you know. Like yeah. just because you're three dimensional now, like doesn't change that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say, you know, one of the things that's cool the the coolest thing, and it's one of the sort of the reasons I wanted to start a podcast, is just access. Like trying to mm. get access to you know people in our field that have great things to say and people should be able to hear what these, you know, people who are growing and need information and ideas to learn from, they, I think people deserve access to that. And I think it's yeah. just amazing that you're providing access to someone like, you know, Winton, you know, for an example, but all of them you named are similar to that. The fact that you can, like someone like me could sign up and have access to Winton seems like too good to be true <laughs> almost. So I just think that's so cool. And you, way, obviously man. you're making... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're making these connections with people. And and yeah, for me, to be honest, like one of the things about the podcast that I did not anticipate, and I'm curious, you know, to see what this is like for you through through Apex, uh, is that like I've made a lot of connections in our field now, just like through having conversation. And so I'm curious, like, what does that feel like for you to to especially through these guest artists? I mean, you've talked about the the participants, but like for the guest artists and stuff like that, people that we never thought we'd have access to, does it feel like friendly with them now? Oh, yeah. Like what's that vibe like? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's not I'm not gonna like knock on Winton's door <laughs> to get coffee or whatever. <laughs> Although, like from what I hear, he's pretty open open to just hanging out with people, but uh you know, it, everybody's cool. Everybody's friendly. Like we usually ask people to sign on just like 15 minutes ahead of time, just just to talk, you know, for a minute, just to get to know them just a little bit. Most of these people mm -hmm. we have some kind of personal connection to uh, in one way or another. That's kind of how we get their information. Uh, and um, so it's it's nice to kind of catch up, you know, for a minute and maybe, maybe share some things. Some people we know better than others. Um, but yeah, it's not... I don't know. It's not like we're best friends or anything like that, but like it's it is really nice to actually speak to, you know, these like paragons of our industry. Yeah. I just think I think that's amazing and I it's it's I think it's such you're just doing it's such a good thing, you know. Yeah. It's a good thing to have come out of the pandemic, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like of all the crazy craziness of it, Seriously. the fact that there's more access and we view this, especially through something like Zoom, we view this as a as an option. And it I mean, doing it in person is even better. But the fact that Zoom makes it so it's possible to pot, you know, continue even when things pick back up and people are busier again and things like that. I think that's amazing. So I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that just because uh, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for bringing that up. I, I you know, I've I've loved Apex. I love those people. You know, and there's just such a, a good supportive vibe. And, and I think particularly in the pandemic when we were isolated and a lot of us were just in our, in our homes or, you know, for younger people, sometimes just in a room and they're just like not interacting with other people. And like, here's an opportunity to actually like share and give back and forth and be heard. And, and it was just, I think it was really, really meaningful for a lot of people. And that vibe continues, you know, I mean, we have right now we have, um, a group that I think roughly half have been prior participants. And that's been pretty much true. You know, usually about half the people sign up again. 
Um, and so we'll, we'll see where it goes from here. You know, I, I, I think we'd really like to continue it uh, for, for a long time. It's, it's always challenging now because we're, everybody's starting to work and, uh, and play and study in, in person again. So there's a little less time for the online um, format, um, but we, we're, we're dedicated to it. It seems to be working. And as you said, I think it's valuable for, for all of us, myself included. And so um, I, I really want to keep it going. So I have a question. It's gonna. I'm. I'm gonna have to frame this and and sort of be a little bit honest from my side, so you kind of understand where I'm coming from. But musicians often have a scarcity mindset, right? This idea mm. that like if if I do something like the simplest solution would be if there are two trumpet teachers in one city and there's mm. one. They view it as like, well, there's like one student. Mm. If that student studies with the other person, then I don't have that. You know, I have less, mm. right? And it's just a sort of a false view of the idea that there's, you know, there's opportunity and people with like sort of a growth mindset or whatever. Have you, do you feel you've ever struggled with anything like that? Like you're putting your thing out there and other people then put their thing out there and it's kind of similar to your thing. Cause if I'm being real, I've absolutely struggled with this. Yeah. Of like, I'm putting my product out there and it, and it can feel like people are paying attention to somebody else more than they're paying attention to me. And yeah. like all of a sudden in my head, I'm telling myself, stories about people that are I know aren't true mm. right but it's like I'm feeling like negative about people I know nothing about I'm just mm. curious as like have you struggled at all putting so much stuff online and trying to it from a marketing from like a I'm actually we're providing something that we care about have you struggled with anything like this and if not what kind of mindset do you have towards all of this work and all of this sharing that allows you to sort of be a little bit not struggling with that yeah that's a tough one. I, I got to be honest. This this is one area where I, through no effort, through nothing that I've done consciously, it's not something that I generally worry about too much. I feel a lot of a lot of uh, sort of honestly anxiety about about my own growth, but it's very internal. You know, it's very much about like what I feel like I do well or don't do well, and I and I'm hyper aware of that. And I'm and I'm very aware that like other people do things way better than I do, but that. Just like I just kind of take that for granted, you know. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think that you know, even I mean, I don't. Even the North Carolina Symphony thing was a recorded audition, but even when I was doing the audition trail and like hitting four, five, six auditions a year, like I didn't, I don't really worry that much about who else happened to be there. I just kind of assumed that like other people play better than me, but like I also kind of had faith that if I play my best, that I really have a shot. You know, um, so that, that's just where I'm coming from. Yeah, I think it's just I, maybe an even better way to say it would be just it's, you're, it's like seeing people as competitors rather than people who are offering and that it's be, it's good. I see it. I've really worked through this and I see it now is like good that there are so many people trying to share so many great things. Mm -hmm. But at first, when I wasn't like ready for it, you know. It felt like all of a sudden, like, are there all these competitors to this thing that that I was trying to share? You know what I mean? Like, this almost like a market in this thing. And uh, yeah, I was just curious if what your perspective was because I agree, I totally agree with your perspective. I just think like I've struggled getting there. I guess you yeah. know what I mean. Like, yeah, for sure. So, just curious for your thoughts on that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's a tough thing, and I think also things have changed a lot. I remember when I first I first signed up for Instagram. Uh, I think right before I, I got the UNCSA job, and I I saw. 
that Mary had always kind of posted a lot and uh, uh, had like a billion followers. And, you know, I realized that like in order to get my name out there more and to get the school's name out there more, I needed to, to share. And I saw that video got way more attention than pictures. And so I thought like I, I wanted to see more video from trumpet players, you know. And uh, so I thought like, well, if I want to see, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do it. So I started posting posting mostly videos. I mean, if you if you look at my social media stuff, there's very few pictures. Uh, it's almost all video um, because I think it, I want to hear people play, you know? I want to, yeah, and, yeah. and, and a big part of that is like, like we were saying earlier, I think that by by kind of setting a, a goal of posting on, on social media, it helps me improve as a player, which is really my, I got to be honest, it's my number one goal. I mean, I wish I could say that I had higher goals of like, I want to improve the world and, uh, you know, share music and, you know, you know, whatever. But like, I just want to get better every day. I just want to get better at playing the trumpet. That's what I want. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I'm similar actually, you know, I, I'm starting to understand that getting a job in an orchestra, like I used to listen to Chicago symphony records and be like, this would be amazing to do. And I still sort of think that to some degree, but I think my desire to pursue that path was like, this will be challenging to do. Mm. And, and it's like almost like a puzzle to solve. How do I learn? How do I grow to such a degree that I could be successful in this endeavor? Mm. Because like, it, you know, and I think this can happen to a lot of people, but once I got the job, it lost some of its like flavor. You know what I mean? Like, it's like you achieved the goal. Like now what? Right. I think this yeah. happens to a lot of people in a lot yeah. of different arenas. Um, so maybe this is a good segue into just talking about the different facets of what you do, you know, because before you were playing in Naples, you're seeing the, the Marine Band, you were in Naples, and then you came to UNCSA. Yes. I think I got that right. That's it. And just how, you know, what is this like to to prepare for these different aspects of, of life? Like, how did you make this decision that you were going to leave a full-time professional orchestra and come to this uh, school and want to do that and like all the things that come with it. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's like a challenge. I think identity comes into mind and into this conversation. I'm just curious, sort of just to start this conversation and see where it goes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think this is a big one. When I was in school, all I wanted was to, um, you know, have a paycheck. Really, I just, I just, I was just like, I don't, you know, I, I like, like probably most students, like, I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to live. You know, <laughs> I don't want to have to flip burgers. Yeah. Like I, you know, I want to make money in music somehow. So like that, that was like the only goal is to win an audition. And, um, and once I, once I got that, then I realized like, oh, oh, wait a sec. Oh, I actually want, like, I want to do a lot more than that. Um, and it wound up, wound up going back to the just getting better thing. And, and um, so I think that my perspective is, has changed a little bit. You know, I think I used to be, because it was all about like, all I wanted was growth. I would be sitting in orchestra or whatever, and you have like a two and a half hour rehearsal and you're just, you're like, I'm not getting better. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you gotta like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you gotta like be like, okay, wait a second, wait a second. I'm, I'm a, even if you're in school, like this is my job. This is my job. I'm getting paid for this and I'm going to appreciate everything there is to appreciate about this situation. And I'm feeling that so much right now after, after not playing with musicians for, you know, a year and eight months or whatever it is. Like, I feel like every phrase that I hear around me, I'm like, wow, that's, that's beautiful. Wow. Like, nice job. Like, oh, that's cool. And I hear the connection, you know, you just like, 
you just start appreciating. And instead, the other side of that that frequently happens is you start thinking like, oh, the conductor didn't give a good downbeat and like that guy plays sharp and like how come they can't come into, you know, you just start hearing and then you start blaming other people and then you start blaming yourself and it's just like a, a, a road into despair. And, uh, um, and it can be hard, like you're saying, if you're, you know, the first couple years you do something, two, three years, you're like, oh, it's like magical, it's so amazing, so amazing. And then like, and then you're there for 10 years or 15 years or something and it's like, how do you, how do you keep that spark? How do you keep that interest? Uh, and I think it is hard, but I mean, I, I, I got to believe that setting that intention of appreciating and, you know, loving what there is to love is, is the, is, is gotta be the best way to do it. Um, about, about what you were saying about leaving orchestra, uh, leaving Naples mm-hmm. to, to come to teaching. Uh, I was there for nine years and, um, and I loved loved Naples. I love those people for sure. You know, I, I loved the orchestra. I loved playing music always. And, you know, that never stopped. But uh, a big part of what happened is that Mary started getting a lot of work um, <clears throat> traveling and performing all over the country and the world. And uh, I wanted more flexibility in my schedule to be able to see her. And uh, I also wanted more flexibility in my schedule to be able to, to just like practice more, honestly, and, and focus more on the growth part of it. And um, <clears throat> so I was like, oh, I want to play more chamber music. And like, I, I, Mary told me about the UNCSA opening and uh, I was pretty reluctant at first. You know, I thought like, oh, maybe I'll go into university teaching when I'm like done with my orchestra career in my late 50s, early 60s or something like that. But to go into it when I was, I think I was 37, it was like felt very, very premature at first. But, um, you know, it was, it was a good move for me. It was... Uh, uh, it allowed me to, for example, actually like keep going with this duo that I have with Mary and, uh, and do more performances um, and to uh, have different sort of musical experiences in the area, play more recitals. Um, all that stuff was like pretty challenging. Um, when, you know, when you're, when you're having an orchestra job, most of the time it's like your job is to do that, like 95% of the time. And, yep. um, and I think that that, there's some good things about that too. You know, there's some very challenging things as we said, but like there's something that comes after playing with the people around you for months or even years. They're like family, musical family. And you just know exactly what they're going to do and you can play right with them every time. And you can't have that if you're freelancing. Yeah. I mean, that's very true. What you're saying, you know, I, there have been certain jobs that have auditions have opened that I've considered taking I mean, I got I have roots here, you know, so it's harder. Um, but one of the reasons that I'm reluctant to take an audition for a bigger job is exactly what you said. I'm not sure if I want to have more of my time be dedicated. You know, like a Chicago Symphony or a New York Philharmonic, it's like they work a ridiculous amount, you know? Yeah. And so we work here, but there is some flexibility and some, you know, uh, I mean, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it's a reality of my job that we have time, you know? And so it's sort of afforded me the ability to start all these other projects and be able to, you know, balance them with not, I wouldn't say ease, but it's possible. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of burning the candle at both ends a little bit, but it's like not extreme, right? Mm-hmm. So it's very true. Like you get into a job and it's like, that's what they're paying you to do, right? That they're, yeah. they're determining this is what your time is worth, but 
Yeah, that those conversations are way more real to me now. Like, is this mm-hmm. what my time is worth? Even even if it's like a good paycheck, you know, it's right. like, is that what I want to be spending my time doing? Essentially, is the question that comes up. So anyway, I just rambled for a while. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> um, I had a question then for you, just about balance. I mean, you're you're mm. the the litany of things I read off at the beginning, and you know, yeah. so you're teaching and you play in the dash duo and you're playing in Santa Fe and you have the the um, principal cornet positions. Just, I mean, maybe it's not a super structured thing, but how do you manage all of it? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. I mean, this year is unusual because it's a one year with the North Carolina Symphony. Like, there's no way that I can keep doing this forever. Like, I have two full time jobs. Plus, I'm doing like a couple concerts with the brass band, a few concerts with the chamber orchestra, a couple little things with the dash duo. Like, you know, this is this is kind of nuts right now what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I've taken a step back a little bit from from the brass band and the chamber orchestra. I'm not doing all of their concerts. Um, and I'm not doing as much with uh, with Mary either. And I'm uh, frankly, I'm not seeing Mary as much this year as I would like to. You know, it's it's uh, that's a real challenge uh, for both of us. And so we have to plan like really carefully. We're looking out like months ahead of time. Like, okay, we're going to spend these three days together at this place. You know, I flew out to San Diego uh, a couple of weeks ago because she was doing a concerto with the San Diego State um, Symphony, and uh, so I heard her play that, and I got to hear the San Diego Symphony and hang out with Chris Smith and Danny Orban, and you know, it was great. But like, I I got to see Mary for four or five days, you know, and like that's that's part of what's going on. You know, she'll drive down to North Carolina or whatever. Um, so in terms of balance, like. You know, people talk about work-life balance. Like right now, for me, it's like ninety-five percent work, and I'm yeah. kind of okay with that. Actually, you know, I think like I wouldn't want to do this forever, but for for a year, I'm into it, and I really like the jobs that I have. North Carolina Symphony yeah. is 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 a is a very good group. Like, just really, really enjoy playing with them. Paul Randall sounds awesome, uh, principal trumpet, and um, and the rest of the brat. You know, the the whole group sounds. Fantastic. The repertoire is really good. I really love my students at UNCSA. We have a great crop um, this year, and, and I'm, I'm enjoying working with them. I love teaching, actually, so it's, uh, um, that's fun, you know, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm figuring it out somehow. You know, you just, I, think, I think the key is all about, like, uh, planning ahead so that I don't, yeah. like, do something dumb, double book myself or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty... For as organized as I am in my practice, I'm pretty terrible about life organization, to be honest. And um, it's like, for me, the answer is like, there's like not really balance, you know? You just like do the thing. I mean, for you, obviously, we're, it makes sense where you're talking about structuring things like, you know, a month or so, however many months in advance. But to me, I just, sometimes it's just like, what's the next thing that yeah. I'm doing? That's where I'll. That's where I'll spend the majority of my efforts. Oh, sure, sure. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I used to be like, well, I'll do a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there, but it's just like it never felt right. And so it's like, all right, I'm just gonna. I'm almost like a. I'll just complete a project type person. Like mm-hmm. some things are, you know, like long, you know, long term, like practicing or something like that. But like right now, I'm interested in doing some writing. So it's just like other things that I might do. It's like kind of like, we'll just put that aside. And there's basically no balance. It's just, what am I most interested in right now? Now, I don't think it necessarily works for everybody, but I just think the idea, like you're saying, of work-life balance, it's like, what is your circumstances? That's your work-life balance. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, th- I think it's it's such an individual thing. I mean, I, I, um, 
you can't tell somebody what it should be. That word should has a lot of weight on it, right? But like, uh, totally. <laughs> you know, it's, it's totally up to the, to the person, you know, how, how they want to structure their life. What's more, what's more important to you, you know? And, and I think that that, um, as intentional as it can be, that word intentional bugs me sometimes, but I mean, as like, uh, you know, purposeful or goal-oriented, uh, on purpose <laughs> as you can make it like that's that's what it's all about so um i try to like for example at uncsa this this year and i plan to continue this i'm having all of the students uh set monthly goals and then and we have a studio class so like every at the first class of every month we like check in on the previous month's goals and we and we figure out like what worked what didn't work and we set the next month's goals and we do it in partners. So I, I par- partnered everybody up so that there's like a sense of community and support. Um, and that's uh, that's another thing that's been really important for, for for these students, I think, at UNCSA, particularly right after the pandemic when we were, you know, isolated yeah. for so long. So I'm trying to like get people together with doing like trumpet ensemble. We like had a trumpet party last week. You know, we're like, I'm encouraging them to get together in, in, uh, as in these kind of goal setting partners, but also just playing duets and stuff like that. So I think the community part yeah, of cool. it is, is essential. And I think it helps them play better. I really do. You know, you just hear somebody and you're like, I like this. <laughs> that I can learn from, you know, it works. Yeah, I mean, I was, when I interviewed Karen Bliznik, I think this was Karen's mm-hmm. interview. We were talking about it, uh, about like Northwestern, you know, around those times there was you know, a lot, I mean, I'm sure it's still the same thing now, but there are so many successful people in terms of getting orchestra jobs at the around that time, that like ten year period of time. Right. And it's funny because people say the same thing. It's like, yeah, Barbara and Charlie were amazing, and the ensembles were great. But almost the thing that everybody talks about is like the community that existed there, and yeah. you could go hear someone play something great, or you could go play a duet with somebody, or like, yeah, that community aspect is the thing. I think a lot of people from that time take away and remember the most. And I'm sure for me, that's the same thing for my undergraduate degree. It's just, yeah, like being able to build that, foster that studio, like familial aspect almost. Like you don't have to get along with everyone at all times, but that we have each other's backs and we're trying to help each other get better. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, and you know, I I deliberately modeled what I'm doing after Charlie and Barbara's efforts uh, because I Mm. I started asking people. I I, uh, asked John Kaplan, I was like, um, this is a couple of years ago, you know, what did what was it about, you know, studying with them and actually being in the studio for a couple of years? You know, what do you think made the big difference? And he told me a lot of great stuff, but one of the things that he said was the community part of it. So I, so I did that on purpose. And then, I, and then I also started thinking about my own trajectory. And I always loved playing duets with people. You know, I did that like all the time. And, uh, and I think that really helped me in, in a lot of different ways. But if, you're, if you've never done that, if you're, you're missing out on a pretty essential um, part of your education you know so any of you who are listening and you're not playing duets with somebody on a semi-regular basis like do it find somebody (laughs) (laughs) do it uh yeah i could i I played duets with a um he's he he went he got trumpet degrees but now he's getting a a a degree in medicine right now Mm. at uab and so he came over and wow we played duets together it's the first time in like 10 years that i've played duets like legitimately you know it's something i just like stopped doing because i play you know in the orchestra all the time right and it was not it was really nice um yeah i suppose the back half of this interview we don't have to go for a lot longer um but i'm just curious um it could be professional, it could be personal, whatever you want to, whatever you 
are willing to share about. But I, I'm just curious. I always love asking people about times of struggle in their life, mm-hmm. um, you know, times of adversity, uh, what that adversity was like, how you came through it, you know, what you learned from the process. So if you, if there's anything that comes to mind. Um, that you'd be willing to share to kind of help us even get to know you on that level a little bit and that we might be able to learn from you in that way, I would be open to hearing it. Oh, man, there's like <laughs> there's a few directions I could go in here because I feel like I've struggled a lot. Um, so I'll try to hit a few, actually. Sure. Um, yeah. First one was that embouchure change that I did. You know, it was, it was rough, really rough. In fact, I, I had a... <laughs> I had an interaction with a, a professor from Rice who had not heard me since I was like a sophomore in college. And, uh, and he was like, you, you have a job? Like you're a professional musician? You know, it was like, it was, I'm serious. It was to that level, you know, because it was, rough, it was really rough. Like I, I had no idea what was going to come out of the end of my bell, frequently nothing, you know. And so I think that that experience helped teach me what not to do. <laughs> um, and I... I basically never change anybody's embouchure. But if I do, I feel like I have a, a, an idea of how I, how I want to do it. You know, I make sure that the sound and the air and the relaxation are really big, big priorities. I think the process is incredibly important. Not, not so much thinking, just go through the process over and over and over again. Trust yourself, be patient. <laughs> you know, keep visualizing success. Um, so there's that. And that, and that ties very closely into what we were talking about earlier about like physical versus, uh, sort of right. uh, musical mental, mental processes. Another thing is, and this kind of ties in is, um, just performance anxiety. Um, and I always, you know, was kind of an anxious person. So like I, even though I, you know, would sometimes do well at auditions, even th- from high school on, uh, it was like, always like, Oh my God, I don't know what's going to happen. And that, and that I, I'm not going to say I've fixed because it's, I still get anxious for performances, but it's most of the time, I would say the vast majority of the time I figured out how to play close to or at my best. And I think it's a deliberate thing. I do it through, uh, centering through, uh, meditation, through visualizing the performance, through, prioritizing letting go and freedom and and releasing control uh, as much as as we said earlier like the focus has to be on controlling the the sort of uh, clarity aspects of playing the trumpet that the, the time and the pitch and the sound and the dynamics um, at some point you just got to trust all that and let it become part of the whole thing that you might just call like the music um, mm-hmm. so anyway, it, it's, it's on purpose, you know, it really is on purpose. And, and Sullivan helped me a lot with that. You know, there were so many times in grad school where you would just say like, play with confidence. And I was like, how do I do that? You know? And then eventually I figured out like, just choose to play with confidence. It winds up being a choice, which is a crazy thing. If you can't yeah. like, if you're, if your consistency level is like not that great on something, like, how do you play with confidence? But like, it's a mindset and you can do it. And the, the confidence and the ability go hand in hand. And if you ignore building, building the confidence and you only focus on the ability, you're, you're missing out on half of it. And the other thing that it helped me a lot with that is um, just prioritizing practicing for the performance. So, you know, the way that I used to prepare for auditions, for example, is I just play the music and just play the music and just learn the music and just work on it, you know? And now... <laughs> 
you know, I mean, starting a, a long time ago, but but continuing now, like I, practicing for the performance. So doing like tons of mock performances, mock auditions, mock recitals, recording yourself all the time, only giving yourself one shot, figuring out what you're going to think the last three seconds before you start playing, figuring out the last like hour before you start playing. Like, what are you, what are you going to do? Just have some kind of plan. And it's very, very much uh, in line with, with your whole set of concepts about like, just make some kind of plan, try it out, do it, figure out if it works or not. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I feel like I'm listening. I mean, so much of the way, even the language you used, I feel like I'm talking to myself. You know? <laughs> yeah. When I, I, I did this, I prepared, I wrote a, uh, a, a program for a recital I just did in Florida. And it, I don't, I'm not a recitalist, right? Like, I mean, I can do it and I enjoy doing it, but I just mean that it's not something I get to do often. That's what mm. I mean by I'm not a recitalist. And so I was like, here we go. Like, I have this opportunity to test all of these ideas about how to prepare for something and how to get my mind in the right place. And I, I didn't play perfectly by any means, but I felt like I played very well. And I, I walked away from that feeling like, you know, I, I was speaking to the, I, I try to talk to the audience while I'm, you know, in, in between pieces. It helps sort of calm me down a little bit. And I was just speaking basically like why I chose to play this piece or why I chose to play that piece. And one of the pieces was the Peskin that I chose. And I was saying that the last time I did it was at Rice. And I was visiting and it just did not go well. You know, it just, it went pretty well, but I don't feel like it went well. And it didn't go well, like to where I felt like I could play it, right? Mm -hmm. So it was less than what I thought I could do. Mm -hmm. So I was basically saying, I wanted to program this piece to see like, if I prepared in the way that I know how to prepare, what's the mm -hmm. difference going to be? Mm -hmm. I felt like I played it quite well. I mean, it's not perfect. You can go online and listen to it for anyone listening. It's not perfect. But what I walked away with is literally saying, I feel like I played well and I did it on purpose. Yeah. Like it's the exact same thing you just said, which is I was like smiling and nodding my head. I was like, yeah. Like what a different way to perform. Yeah. Instead of just like, I've practiced a whole bunch and I'm going to walk out there and I'm going to hope I did well enough in my preparation that it's mm. going to work. It's like, I've actually thought through almost everything I need to think through, if not everything. And so I basically know what I'm doing. So mm -hmm. when I walk out there, everything that happens is on purpose. And it yeah. result and like that's this is why the process to me is so important. This is why I'm like so into sharing these ideas is that like the, th the the steps are just building the process. And like you'll 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 put some steps in there and then you'll be like, all right, well, these things went well, but these things didn't. And then you add to your process to cover those things that didn't go well. And eventually you come up with a process that covers all your bases, and then now you just have a process. <laughs> Right? right, You don't have to actually continually do it. It's like, I've just found the way that works for me to do it. And so you, the thing, and I would love your thoughts on this. I just ranted, but I promise it was for this moment where it's like, <laughs> you have to get to this mindset where you're willing to sacrifice performances to learn about mm. the process. Wow, wow. I, th I really think that, right? You mm. have to get like do mental gymnastics to go, like the purpose of this is for me to learn. Mm. If I don't play well, it will teach me something and that's fine. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to sacrifice the result for the process. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah. Wow. Um, I don't know, man. I, I, I think that, yeah, finding the process is, is essential. I, I don't know if I, I mean, I think like for people who are listening, that, that doesn't mean like <laughs> on purpose sacrifice your, 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 your results no, no, no. or anything like that, but. I, what I guess to clarify is I know people who are who have a system or a process that's like pretty good. 
mm-hmm. but they're so unwilling to like try something new yeah because they don't want it to be worse they're not willing to say like even if it's slightly worse like I- i'm trying something that could be better right yeah so you're saying but you're basically i mean the other it's like a more sort of intense way of just saying like letting go of the result right yeah it's, a, it's to say like i'm gonna sac- like i'm willing to sacrifice the outcome of this so i can figure out if my plan worked right like it could be great but it could also be bad you know what i'm saying like the the point can't like the point can't what you're describing is the point then cannot be the result at at any point because like if you then don't play well you're just continuing to ingrain that you're going to struggle in performance right like yeah. that's the mental space you're putting yourself in as opposed to you could have the same exact outcome but if you're like well that's okay cuz i learned i was willing to like have yeah. a possible bad outcome so i could learn right. then it's like a that's like a somehow a negative experience becomes a positive experience because right. you'll learn from it yeah i think another way to think of it is like uh, your defined time frame is just longer than this specific performance you're willing to totally, yeah. hit hit and miss you know in order in order to learn from the experience so that your growth is over the course of months or years and not just the thing that's happening like in 2 days um, yeah but you know, I think I think some, another thing that I struggled with, and I think a lot of people struggle with this, is like you you try something new, and like it doesn't go great, and you think like you start like laying on the judgment of yourself. I'm not good enough. You know, I'm not capable. I am, and the problem there is that those two words, I am, and it's not it's not what defines you. It's just what you what you're doing, and what you're doing can always change. So I am doesn't really play a part of it. It's just like this is what I what I did, and like then just take a step back and be a little objective about it, and, and don't don't let it hit so close to home, in terms of your identity. Your identity is worthwhile, completely separate from the trumpet, and that that is so goddamn hard to 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 yeah. really internalize. I mean, really, all of us. I mean, I still have a lot of days where like something like my playing is not where I want it to be. And I feel like bad, like really bad. You know, it's better now because I kind of have context. I have a lot of years under my belt and I can say like, okay, first of all, I know it's bad because <laughs> A, B, and C. And like, all right, I've, I've like figured out ways out of that. So that helps a lot. But I also have more security in myself as a, as a human being. And um, I think that, you know, we were talking about judgment and it's like, if you're judging yourself super harshly, like as a person, and you're judging other people, like I don't, I don't know. I, I know you're not judging other people, you know, but I think that a lot, a lot of us fall into this trap of like, I don't know, we're judging ourselves based on like whether we hit the high C or not as human beings, and that's so totally. fucked up. <laughs> totally, I, yeah. This last section, what you just talked about, is like, it's just so important yeah. it's so important and I would not have been able to understand that when I was 18 years old yeah. but it is so important and like the way I've, I think about it is essentially if the development like I wrote this in a, like a little book that I, I, I was putting together about auditions for uh, a client and then I kind of just started actually writing right and I was like I don't think the, the goal of an audition should be to win I think the goal of an audition should be to develop a process that will result in winning. Mm. And the reason I think this is one of the reasons is that if the goal is to develop a process, then if you don't win, you're critical of the process and not of yourself. Mm. 
right? If the goal yeah. is to win and you don't win, you're like, I didn't win. I'm not good enough. Right. But if the goal is the process, you're like, I didn't win. My process wasn't good enough. Yeah, yeah, And yeah, you're yeah. sort of like, you're you're removed from the, the critical nature of what we need to be able to do in yeah. our field. Like anytime you're going to get better, you got to be critical. Yeah. But you're critical of the process you used and like you said, you can always change that. Yeah. But you 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 have like a sort of a separation when you're focused solely on developing a process that will result in whatever your goal is. Right. And I remember reading. Like you what, said you need time. Yeah, you need time. And what what is that book, The Inner Game of Tennis? Right. Mm-hmm. The Inner that's Game one, of yeah, Music. That's that, a good. One. That like hits on this theme that we're we're talking about. And I read that book, you know, when I was younger, and I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But then I didn't have a um, like a way to implement it you know, day to day in my own practicing. And so I would walk into the practice room, like, I hope it goes well. Like, I don't know, but like the yeah. judgment and the, the self-judgment and the criticism were like so heavy that um, I, I, I wasn't able to, I didn't even have a process. I would just, <laughs> just go in there and like try hard, you know, and judge myself harshly, yeah. like before I even started sometimes. That's such what a, you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's such an interesting way that you say it because it's so true. Like, to play better, we just think, well, I'll just try harder. <laughs> and it's like, it, it's so true. It's so true that we're just like, I'll just try, like as if you weren't trying hard the first time. Right. You're like, oh, well, maybe I should try. And maybe you weren't, right? Um, this is also why in the gold method, the O is finding an optimal starting place. Mm. So I believe in this step a lot, or I think it's important, or I believe it's important, is because essentially I think the process itself that we use can be part of developing confidence, Right. If we find a way to make it so in general we sound the way we want, and if that means lowering the, let's say the easiest is to lower the tempo of something, but it doesn't have to be that. You can strip away other variables of difficulty. Um, But if we just say lowering, like Petrushka, if you just lower the tempo and all of a sudden you can play it at the quality that you want to be able to play it, and then you just only play it that way, like I think confidence can be born from that process. Absolutely. That's another reason I totally believe in in these types of, whether it's my system or appropriating part of it into somebody else's system or somebody else's system that's not like mine but works, is I actually think that's what you get from a process is confidence. Absolutely. I think it's one of the hardest things about like coming from the student perspective is you you like prepare an etude or an excerpt or piece or whatever. You bring it in to your teacher and your teacher says like, okay, well, here are the problems. And they start like listing all the issues and you start and you, and you, you know, there's this moment of doubt because you think like, I thought I, I thought I did that. Like, I really thought that it was good enough. And my teacher is telling me it's not good enough. So there, so there's a difference in perception and the, the, the value comes in when, when the student can start hearing, you know, what the teacher hears. Uh, And, and that's where all that technology stuff comes in. But I think the yeah the process is is, uh, is an essential part of that. Obviously, yeah. obviously <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to keep. I mean, you've given me uh, a bunch of time, and I don't. I mean, I feel like we could we could go for a long time. I was just going to see if you had any sort of final thoughts, things that you felt were important, things you wanted to say, and then we can sort of wrap up. Um, yeah, I just want to say thank you. You know, I, I appreciate everything you're doing. I, I feel like. Um, Especially like the last the last two years, you know, as, as we said, the pandemic has been horrible. But like we've had this incredible um, uh, coalescing of, of like an online trumpet community and, and musical community, and and it's a really it's a really beautiful thing, you know. And 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 I'm I'm very grateful, uh, you know, for all of the all of us who are participating in that. And 
Uh, I just I just really enjoy being being part of this community. It's a, it's a great thing. Yeah, I I very much do too. And the community for me, no one knows these things, right? No one knows that I'm going through. But the community, being a part of this community, has taught me a lot. Like just about how I view things and what I should be trying to accomplish and what's my role in this community and all the I've just grown so much just just like being a part of it just just trying to be a part and and getting to a point where it's like here's just my piece I'm just gonna share yeah. my piece of it and for the ultimate goal being that people benefit from it you know the people who are digesting things that we are sharing mm -hmm. um, and that I can digest things that you're sharing and that Chris Smith is sharing and that it's like it's for all of us. We all benefit when yeah. more people bring good ideas to the table. Like I've just learned so much and I'm so yeah. I'm grateful. And I'm grateful for this connection um, that, that you and I could have uh, today. And so um, if anybody is interested in finding more about you, your teaching, your studio, Apex, performances, all the, where can people kind of find more information about you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you can find me always on social media, on Instagram or Facebook, dash TRPT. Uh, just type in my name. Uh, I've also started posting a bunch of stuff on YouTube. I started recording a lot of the Chickowitz Flow Study, like etudes uh, and some other things. And um, uh, the, the University of North Carolina School of the Arts website. Uh, oh, by the way, we're, this is not 100% finalized, but we're, we're in talks with uh, developing um, some minors for undergraduates, a jazz minor, possibly an education minor. Um, so that's, that's something that we're working on, on on the next few months, and uh, we'll be ready to present that pretty soon. So we're psyched. If you're interested in UNCSA for uh, uh, undergrad, graduate, or, or uh, high school levels, uh, just contact me. I'm happy to give a free lesson and just answer any questions you have. Cool. Um, anything about Apex? Do you want to share yeah. about that? Yeah, we're, we're working on next uh, next semester. You know, we'll probably start sometime mid-January uh, and figure out so that'll be online still. And then uh, over the summer, we're, we're talking about doing like a probably a five-day, um, five to seven-day uh, in-person component. Um, and so that's that, that's the kind of thing where it's like uh, you sign up for uh, a multi-week package. You know, it's like you, you sign up for like 10 weeks all at once um, and, and then you're just part of the group, you know. We also have auditor... Um, uh, options. So if you want to sign up as an auditor, you can do that anytime. That means you have access to all of the videos from uh, from that that semester. Or if you want to sign up for multiple multiple semesters, you can do that. Uh, and then you can watch all the videos afterwards. Um, that's been beneficial to me actually, because like like Tom Hooten did a fundamentals class and a master class, but he did a fundamentals class. I downloaded it. I cut out some of the some of the extraneous like stuff that I didn't want to watch many times, and basically just the playing back and forth kind of stuff. And I play with it sometimes. So uh, mm. if you want to do that, you can do it. Uh, is there a website for that? Are you on social yeah. media? How can people find that? Yeah, www.apextrumpet.com. Cool. Well. Awesome. It's a lot of stuff to check out. People should check that out if they are interested in uh, any of those things. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I would really appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and a review on iTunes for this episode. Uh, if you had any feelings about it whatsoever, and uh, also don't forget to share it on social media so that you can, uh, other people can find out about it as well. One more time, Dave, thank you so much for giving me a little bit of your time today. It was very enjoyable for me. I feel like I got to know you quite a bit better, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we had this chance to do this. Thank you so much, Ryan. Really appreciate it. Great talking to you. Yeah. Um, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. 
Stay strong. Be kind to yourself. Never stop growing. And we'll see you next time. Hello, hello, hello. That's not Spit fans and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today's secret message is just to say that don't be afraid to slow down and take a look back over your shoulder. I do one of these podcast episodes once a week, and it can be really easy for me to fall into a thoughtless routine. Today, I decided to take a look back over my settings, and I found something that I could use to make the show sound even better. Even after a hundred episodes, I could still find a way to improve. So, slow your roll. Take that look back. You never know what you might find. And remember, shh, don't tell Ryan.